Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of the Skewed and Reviewed Skewedcast. I'm Gareth, creator of Skewed and Reviewed. You can catch us online at sknr.net. If you're into audio and uh, other than the Skewedcast, you can catch my weekly segments on KSWFM Radio. On uh, KSW.com, we simulcast each week. We were going to have the Friday segment up on Friday, but they uh, opted to move servers that day, so we're going to have that up on Monday, and then we will have the Friday segment up on Friday, so two in a week. Go to Pinal, P-I-N-A-L, central.com, keyword skewed, and you can see our reviews in the Pinal uh, Central Network of Newspapers. And then finally, we have our uh, syndication partners and, of course, Skewed and Reviewed the magazine. We just put out the new issue this week with a preview of Call of Duty uh, Black Ops Cold War and much more. So I'm joined, as always, with Justin and Michael, and we're going to have a look at some uh, interesting things that are coming up in the world of pop culture, movies, games, entertainment, and more. So the first things I wanted to start with before we get into our discussions is that Rocat has released, they are available today, the 7.1 ELO headsets for PC. These are value-priced but high-performance gaming uh and audio headsets for uh, movies and, of course, your applications, various things. One of the great things about them is that they come in both a wired and wireless uh, variety. The wired version runs for $69.99, and the wireless runs at $99.99. So you get a very sleek, stylish, sturdy, and high-quality audio experience at an affordable price. So you want to check that out. Also out is Crash Bandicoot 4, It's About Time. Activision has put this out. I've been uh, one who has struggled mightily over the years with time jump games and so on and so forth, but I have uh, actually managed to work my way through a few levels so far and really enjoying it. So uh, as long as you have patience uh, or an abundance of skill in those uh, types of games, you'll be all set. A couple of other things I wanted to mention before we get on to our topics are some releases from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. And uh, the first one is from the creator of Red vs. Blue. We have R-Y-B, excuse me, R-W-B-Y, and it comes with the uh, concept art gallery, photos, production breaker, downs and more as well as one of their panels so if you're a fan of anime you might really enjoy this another one that popped up unexpectedly was from the archive collection and this is space ghost and dino boy the complete series i grew up watching the space ghost cartoons and of course they had the talk show later so on and so forth so you've got the complete series here which is a lot of fun but the big release is uh Batman Death in the Family. Now, this is, of course, the latest in the R-rated lineup of animated DC films, but this one comes with a twist. It not only includes shorts for Sergeant Rock, Adam Strange, The Phantom Stranger, Death, comes with all sorts of uh, little uh, bonuses, but here's where it gets very interesting. This is an interactive movie. So this is one that allows you to choose various options in the story, and the story will unfold. So, for example, the one they show on the box. Uh, Because the Joker wants revenge, but you can save him. Does Robin cheat death? Does Batman save Robin? 
or does Robin die? So you have various choices like this that pop up. And apparently some of the choices lead to some really surprise scenarios to the point where Warner Brothers has had to ask people, stop putting out some of the surprises because I guess people have been saying, hey, if you do this, guess who pops up and does this, this, and that? And of course, there you have it. So it's not the first time people have tried interactive movies. Um, just curious to see how this will play out, and I think it, it's got all the recipes for it. You've got Batman, you've got an R-rated uh, animation, and you've got an essential choose-your-own-path, so it'll be curious to see how that plays out. Now, speaking of Warner Brothers, our first discussion topic for the day is that on the heels of Microsoft buying Bethesda, there are rumors popping up that should, should, Warner Brothers Interactive put their gaming division back on the market, Sony would be an ideal fit and would be very interested. So we'll start with Justin. Do you think there's any truth to this, and do you think Sony would uh, indeed do this? Yeah, I think it's it's plausible. Um, you know, a lot of these rumors, they do just stay as rumors, so I, I can't really put a lot of stock into how likely it is, but, you know, I think that if Warner Brothers did... Uh, if they were interested in selling, I do think that Sony would would probably be interested in uh, in a purchase, especially now that after Microsoft has uh, purchased Bethesda. I know that you know Microsoft uh, is kind of reorganizing its strategy to not really consider Sony as more as a competitor, and they are more trying to create a larger platform environment between their PC and their and their console um, divisions. That way, that you know they're not in direct competition with with sony but you know uh they can't sony can't really avoid the question uh, of of the bethesda purchase so i i do think that it would make sense like if i saw uh the news that sony purchased warner brothers interactive entertainment it really wouldn't surprise me all that much especially after the bethesda purchase um this would give uh sony a number of very lucrative properties including the uh uh, the Lord of the Rings video games, uh, which obviously a huge property, they can do a lot with that. Uh, that license alone, uh, we'll give them Rocksteady Studios. Um, you know the the Batman game. Is it probably any of the DC games? Uh, also talking about the Mortal Kombat uh, titles through NetherRealm Studios. Also Monolith Productions. So this would give them a number of studios if if this is actually true uh, and it's something that they're they're interested in doing. Um, and you know, it, it might, it might not be at, as big as the, as Bethesda purchase, but it would be, you know, within the same ballpark. So I'm kind of curious to see if this, if this pans out, you know, it, it might just be that Sony is, um, uh, not exactly that, that concerned with what Microsoft is doing, especially now that, you know, Microsoft is sort of pivoting to a, a larger platform kind of model. So We'll only kind of have to wait and see. I mean, a lot of times these rumors, like there's all sorts of rumors every day about things like this. So it's kind of hard to, to put a, a ton of stock into how likely it is, but it is definitely plausible. And Michael, your take, please. Yeah, one of the things, and Microsoft kind of started this what, a couple years ago when they started purchasing up a bunch of studios. Um, Sony had kind of followed suit with some of their own um, platform-specific studios. I think one of the issues that we run into is that one of the things I think that is something we should be moving away from is platform exclusivity. I don't think that benefits anybody but the develop but the owners of those platforms. 
um, whether that be Microsoft, Sony, or Nintendo. And it really does kind of hurt the consumer base more than anything. Um, and we see this also with, um, you know, do we with some of the streaming services for video as well as, you know, what what happens for those who can't afford one or the other systems, but they like the exclusivity bases, they end up getting the one that they like, but that may not be the ones that their friends like, which overall impacts their ability to, to play with one another. Cross-platform is one of those things that has helped. Um, but again, that doesn't do you much good if the studio is only going to provide the um, game on one system or another. Um, so yeah, it doesn't surprise me that we'd see these rumors. I think the Bethesda thing kind of caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, probably, um, you know, because it was such a big acquisition. So I think there's going to be a lot of other rumors swirling around about other studios that might be looking for a buyer. I mean, we kind of heard some of these rumors with Sega and Microsoft a couple of months ago. Um, and this may be something that of the same um, vein, right, where they're saying, well, we know Microsoft has bought Bethesda, but we're looking at getting um, Warner Brothers Interactive. You know, again, these rumors are kind of um, just that, they're rumors, right? I mean, there's a lot more to acquiring a studio than just having an interest in one. <clears throat> That's not to say Sony doesn't have an interest in WB Interactive, um, but there could be other interested parties, kind of like we've seen with, you know, TikTok, for example, with Microsoft and then Oracle coming in to, to purchase that or, or to acquire that. Um, just because a studio is interested doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to go the way they want them to do or fall or it's going to fall through. But yeah, it's interesting to watch these things and, and kind of see where they go. Um, and these rumors, again, they, they float around all the time. I wouldn't put much stock into it until we get something down on paper, something that's uh, legitimate. But it's always interesting to see what these um, uh, companies are doing to kind of widen their their grip on the uh, gaming market as a whole. Yeah, what's interesting is I saw something that was running by Gaming Bolt, and of course, you know, this guy's always saying stuff to, it's the nature of his business, speculation and what ifs and, uh, well, you know, they've done this, so I'm expecting this and this to happen. And Michael Pachter basically came out and he says that he thinks Sony is in a good position to acquire Warner Brothers should AT&T choose to sell the division, uh, the games division. They said, you know, they recently decided against it following reports that they were up for sale. And then they, you know, he mentions uh, things like Batman and Mortal Kombat could be a very big fit. You mentioned, of course, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, so on and so forth. But then he throttles back and says Sony traditionally goes for smaller purchases like Insomniac and that sort of thing. These are the kind of, act of acquisitions I would expect. So here's this contradiction. Well, they're in a great position to buy them, but then again, they normally just buy smaller studios. So um, one thing that they speculated on, and I thought this was very interesting, is that they might instead go for perpetual rights versus trying to buy the studios outright. So the example they give is that what if they were to buy the rights just to Batman or Mortal Kombat? And then that way they have them or, you know, similar to what they did with Spider-Man and, and so on and so forth. And I thought, eh, it's interesting. And it is exactly what you said. Everybody is expecting, oh, oh, you know, Microsoft went out and bought Bethesda. So what's Sony going to do? And I think on some level, Sony probably could care less. I think their attitude is as long as we can get these titles for our platform, what do we care? And I, you know, everybody expects Sony to go out and make this big splash to uh, counter it. And my take is, 
look at their history. This is not how they do things. Remember what the Japanese business model has always been, long term. You don't make short-term decisions uh, and reactionary decisions. You look at things 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, and they probably look at it and say, okay, you know, that's what it is, but there's no reason for us to immediately throw this money out there unless it makes sense to do so. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see, but I, I would be shocked because, you know, who knows? This could be an example where um, should Warner Brothers decide to go up for sale, they could be saying, hey, Sony, Sony, you know, hey, your competition just did this. And Sony could say, yeah, whatever. So, you know, there you go. It could be there's speculation. But let's remember, the last one came out of the blue. And so we'll see how this plays out. Now, another thing we're all looking forward to seeing how this plays out is uh, this coming week, October 8th through the 11th, New York Comic Con is going digital. They are following the model that San Diego Comic Con did earlier in the year with online panels free to all who want to watch them. And uh, one of the interesting things they're doing is that you can look at the daily schedule and you can also break it down by type. So if you only want to do cosplay panels, it'll only show you those. If you want to see everything, you can see that. Or if you want to say, oh, just show me stuff that's movie-related, TV-related, and there you go. So they aren't going as much with, hey, we're going to have 10, 12 things happening at the same time. But they are offering a lot of variety. And while some of the panels do seem to be essentially, uh, I'm not going to say they're the same ones that we saw at San Diego Comic-Con, but the title and description are the same. So I'm not sure they will be the exact same thing that we've seen. I think they might be more updated versions. Who knows? Uh, but there also will be some interesting things with um, The Walking Dead and the new, you know, those series. And we will start with Michael. What do you think? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of this model to try to keep folks interested in the shows and also provide some sort of benefit to um, the community as a whole. I, I like the idea of these of them going virtual and kind of keeping things going. I think it's best to kind of keep things as, as you know moving in the right direction and moving forward and to keep interest in things. Because honestly, we don't know, you know, by next year this time, will we be seeing convention halls packed with, with folks? Maybe. I mean, we don't know at this point, but I think it's a good way that they have to at some point try this model to see if it's a successful endeavor for them if they need to do this, you know, maybe for next year as well. Again, since we don't know where we're going to be next year at this time, it, it's good for them to to get their get get this in, get it get to see what kind of interest there is, kind of see what they can do to to move this along and share with folks, you know, to give them something to look forward to and something to to kind of dig into. Um, it's you know, you know, New York Comic Con is is big. It's not nearly as big as San Diego Comic-Con, but it is something that a lot of folks look forward to attending. Um, they have a pretty good set of guests that are going to be, you know, virtually there as well. So, yeah, I think it's important for um, the community as a whole to kind of see what they can do with these types of uh, conventions. I think a lot of the things that they do do kind of tend, tend to be good for virtual panels. Things like, you know, just the regular panel type stuff is fine. You don't get the fan interaction. You don't get the cosplay. You don't get the the excitement of being in a room and seeing your stars up close and personal. But at least this gives you know fans an opportunity to connect and still kind of enjoy um, the idea of a comic con. And again, hopefully by next year at this time, 
we'll be seeing these things in real life again. But it does kind of give, you know, gives keeps people interested, gives the people something to look forward to, and I think it's, you know, the best they can do at this point. And Justin, your take, please. Yeah, I definitely think Michael's right there. I think uh, now that a few of these events, have, pretty much all of these events, have sort of uh, followed this model, I think this is just the normal that's going to be the case until uh, these events can be held safely. The downside being, I, you know, I, I think that just like San Diego Comic-Con, I think the the amount of, like, shocking reveals and, and very exciting things that come out of it are probably going to be lower than than uh, you would expect in an in-person event. Yeah, we'll probably see a few panels that have some new information on, on upcoming things that are coming out, but it's probably going to be a little bit lighter than uh, than a normal New York Comic-Con, um, just because of the nature of uh, not just the, the new format, but also because a lot of the companies that studios that are working on these things, um, they're just uh, farther behind than they would normally be in a, in a normal year. But uh, like Michael said, hopefully things next year will be uh, more normal uh, in that hopefully some of these events can be held in person. Because so I think I think the format is just better that way. I mean, th- there are some benefits, obviously, to, you know, oh, it's just I can just watch whatever panel I want uh, for free. That's that's pretty cool. But uh, this is definitely not the, the preferred method for delivering all this information. So hopefully next year we can return to in-person conventions safely. Yeah, and the thing, too, Michael brought up a really good point. Now, it, it, it's funny how this is all spun. Um, New York Comic Con actually outdraws San Diego Comic Con in terms of number of people that are in the building. Uh, but, as Michael pointed out, San Diego Comic Con is the big show for all the reveals, all the celebrities. Not to say New York Comic Con does not have a, a nice celebrity presence, not to say they don't have a lot of stuff. They do hence the size of the con, but traditionally speaking, due to the proximity to uh, Hollywood and due to the fact that it is, um, you know, first, it is traditional that San Diego Comic-Con is where all the big stars and all the big reveals come out. And so it will be interesting to see um, how this happens. I myself find, uh, I ran into this with a lot of the game cons, is that fatigue was setting in. I was sitting there going, you know, how many more of these things are there uh, that are essentially not really telling me anything new, that they're just churning things, and there's no buzz, there's no excitement. As Michael will point out, when you get into a panel at a convention, that's one thing, but when you get into a panel at San Diego Comic-Con, there is an energy in the room. There's an excitement because you know the stars are coming out. And one of the things is they always have something for you. Is it going to be uh, some shocking news? Is it going to be something even as simple as, hey, the next season's been renewed? They're going to have footage for you. There's something. Or they're going to have some fun moments. I mean, you know, you don't know what is going to happen, and that's what makes it all exciting. And then the other thing is that people are there with their phones in their hands everybody and this is why these things are so popular the amount of social media energy these shows generate and that's gone when you have uh it online because it's available to everybody you don't have the exclusiveness of i'm one of only five thousand six thousand eight thousand people in this room i am going to hear it first and I am going to go on 
and put it out there so the billions of people in the social media world uh, can be exposed to it. And I think that's kind of the trick because the lineup is good. I saw things on there that I didn't see offered at San Diego Comic-Con that I was like, oh, I definitely want to have a look at it. But I also saw a lot of things going, well, I already saw that panel, like case in point, the Blade Runner comic. Now, I sit there and say, well, I'd love to hear more about it, but if it's the same thing I've already saw, don't know. But then again, there's the Star Trek panel. So I'm like, okay, are we going to get some news about Picard? Are we season two? Are we going to get some uh, news on the Star Trek New World series? Who knows? But I, I think at least it's something. And as you guys pointed out, this is going to be what we have to uh, deal with. Once this is done, uh, we're pretty much set until January when Michael and I and uh, everyone will be jumping back into CES. But instead of making our trek to Vegas, we're going to be watching uh, it online. And of course, we've been trying to see how this is going to work. We know that we'll see keynotes and things like that, which is traditionally done in the days before the show, the, the showroom floors open. But you know, how is something like this going to work? Is, you know, this traditionally is something where you meet with people, you get hands-on on the products, you can ask the questions. So a lot of things to be answered. After that, we start to look at things like uh, WonderCon in April. We start to look at um, uh, CinemaCon. And uh, Michael has said, you know, that possibly might be one that they try to do because it is a smaller crowd. It is more controlled. It's not open to the public. Uh, we already know that, like, the licensing expo uh, pivoted, and they're not doing their thing, but there is another online expo uh, that's happening. So, you know, the world continues to adapt, and I think, um, you know, I, I'm going to say it, guys. I was going to say this as an example, but let's just bring it up. Uh, there was some talk, tickets are on sale, that the Los Angeles Comic-Con has said that they were going to go ahead as scheduled in December, and this, of course, has created... Uh, you know, some division. Some people say, oh, they're just selling the tickets so they have something in place for next year. Some people are saying, well, they've got it there. They're hedging their bets for what ifs. Some people are saying, oh, this is great. So if this does happen, it will be interesting to see um, if this is what they're going to do and how things move forward. And we've talked about, you know, there was a smaller one out in the South. People are waiting for that moment to dip the toes, but without going too much into it, I think perhaps that the events of the last few days have definitely made people think that, hey, guess what? Maybe these gatherings are not a good idea. Um, you know, there's a huge debate that can happen around that. Uh, but I think we are definitely in a position where things like this and long-term plan going to have to be revisited. Now, moving on to our final uh, topic for the day, uh, we were talking a lot about the uh, movies and uh, movies moving. Wonder Woman got moved to Christmas Day. Uh, a lot of people said, oh, this is getting moved. We've seen Black Widow get moved. But everybody was looking at James Bond 007 in no time um, to die. But now they're coming out and it's been announced that the movie has been pushed back until Easter of 2021. And it's already had a an effect because Cinemworld has immediately shut down all 543 Regal Cinemas 
all their U.K. locations and all their Ireland locales and have even gone so far as to reportedly have contacted the British government and said this is an untenable situation. Live exhibition cannot and will not work under these current situations. We do not have product to drive people into the theater, and therefore there's no point in keeping the cinemas open because no one's coming. So, Michael, start us off. You actually went to a movie recently, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how that went and how you felt in the audience, and then answer this one, please. I've actually gone to two movies recently. I went and saw Face Off at Alamo Draft House on Friday night, and I saw Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, I saw Empire Strikes Back the weekend before. Now, to be fair, Alamo is a much smaller theater for those who have attended, and when I went to see Empire Strikes Back, there were two groups counting myself, so I think a total of like seven people. And then when we went and saw Face Off, it was a bit more, but we're talking like 12 people. And again, this is in a theater that's a fairly large theater. People are extremely social distanced, and the fact that we were the only two in each row, and we had like three people in a row in front of us and that sort of thing. But again, these are movies that are older, to be fair. There aren't a lot of new films that are coming out to drive people in. And even for a theater as small as like Alamo, showing a movie for seven people or 12 people, I mean, the one thing about Alamo that Regal and a lot of these other cinemas don't necessarily have is they at least have food revenue that can kind of help offset some of the cost of showing the movie. So, you know, you still have, you know, drinks and stuff like that that they're bringing to you, and that's obviously driving some of their revenue. I mean, we felt perfectly safe. Obviously, you wear masks the whole time except for when you're eating or drinking. But again, it was a much smaller venue. There weren't very many people there. You know, seats are assigned, so socially distance is a given. We're not talking a 100, 200-seat theater where a lot of people are in there, and it's harder to control the amount of, you know, interactions that folks have. But even for those types of theaters, you know, there's still not a lot to drive people to go to the theater to actually see a movie. There's, you know, I think a lot of us were kind of looking forward to the new James Bond movie coming out soon, which now is not going to happen. And that was going to be one of those big summer blockbuster-type movies that they hoped were going to draw people into the theater. So from a safety perspective, yeah, I mean, we felt pretty safe. It wasn't anything that we were too concerned about. But again, I don't think they're going to – that we're talking 10, 12 people versus maybe 100 people. And also, I just don't think there's enough certainty right now with how things are to really feel comfortable going and staying in line at a theater, going and staying in line for concessions, going and sitting in a movie theater that doesn't necessarily have assigned seating, and then hoping that the amount of people that show up are going to follow the rules and actually wear masks and keep their distance. So, yeah, I can't really – I can certainly understand why, from an operating standpoint, keeping these theaters open for the amount of people they bring in, having to pay their employees, having to stock up on concessions. One of the things we found out about Alamo is their menu is really limited. At first, we thought maybe the menu was limited because of trying to keep things safe and keep the food preparation safe and all that stuff as well. But I really think that part of that also is the shelf life of some of this stuff. They know they're not going to get the amount of people to bring in to satisfy the food type stuff. So you'll see things at Alamo that are off the menu like they don't serve burgers anymore. 
Um, they don't serve some of the more uh, some of the stuff that is that's more fresh and is, isn't easily frozen and isn't easy to um, to for shelf life, right? So it's not just the amount of uh, keeping things safe and the type of food that's safe for people, but it's also how do you how do you purchase for a crowd that isn't there? You know, how do you provide you know concessions? How do you stock up on stuff when you don't know what the, what the crowd is going to be? So there's a lot of things outside of just paying the folks that work there that you have to consider the cost of what what does it cost to rent the films or, or to bring the film into the theater and are they going to get their money back from the films? You know, again, most of the money made is in concessions. How comfortable do people feel with concessions at a theater? You know, what what you know are they are they going to still buy popcorn? Are they still going to buy drinks? Are there concerns now with refills and that sort of thing? What kinds of revenue streams are the theaters going to have? So in general, I, I think it's hard to to plan for those things and also to compete when your theaters, when you're typically selling out thousands of tickets on a weekend, and now you're selling, if you're lucky, hundreds of tickets on a weekend. Uh, it's just hard to to pay for the the electric bill and the rent and the and the employee salaries and the concessions and all this on films that aren't necessarily big drivers or aren't films that are going to bring in people because they're not new or the things they can watch at home. So I think. Generally speaking, I don't really think theaters have a lot of choice in this, particularly the big, the large theaters. I just think that, you know, we're really at a time where people just don't feel comfortable locking themselves in a, in a theater with a group of people without knowing what the consequences are going to be. And Justin, your take, please. Yeah, I 100% agree. You know, uh, you kind of look around and you see that a lot of stuff is sort of returning to normal-ish, just in terms of like, it just seems like people are a little bit more comfortable going out, um, you know, to restaurants and stuff. Um, but we're definitely not close to normal. I think it's just in comparison to where we were a few months ago, it's a little bit more normal. People are, have a little bit more activity. Um, now that, you know, at least in some, some locations, like there was a large spike and then it's gone back down. So as numbers go down in some places, I think there is a little bit more activity. But I think theaters kind of fall under those the category where people just don't really feel safe going to yet. Um, you know, there's no there's no real way to get around the fact that uh, that tenant tenant was like the big test case because it was a big blockbuster and it was sort of expected to do pretty well like in a normal year. And um, there's no really getting around that its numbers are are pretty disappointing just in comparison to a normal year. Now, uh, I, I think it would probably be smart for um, the studio to kind of look at that as, uh, you know, is this successful, um, you know, given the fact that we, we have these uh, the COVID situation going on? And that is a harder question to answer because there's nothing to really compare it against um, the, of a similar caliber. Uh, but that, that being said, you know, it, it still is disappointing. And I think it's just it's so... Uh, it's a numbers game, uh, like like Michael very well uh, highlighted. A lot of this, a lot of these costs are just, you know, there's not really any way to get around it. That, uh, um, you know, it, it's probably easier for a lot of these studios just to remain closed rather than try to keep the engines going at at basically a fraction of the uh, of the normal capacity that they they normally expect in terms of business. Um, so until they can kind of like meet that threshold where they can at least break even, they're not going to open, um, and that, that's really unfortunate. But it, it's a it's sort of a cyclical cycle because they need 
they need movies to attract people, but the movies aren't going to be willing to, to have, um, they're not going to re- be willing to take the risk of like opening, um, at basically half the, the, the money they need to break even. Um, so really it's just that everybody's just going to have to keep waiting until they feel confident enough that they can put their movie in theaters and the theaters are confident enough that they can get the, the crowds to come. Uh, and I think we're still a ways off from, from that. We're probably sometime into next year uh, at this point because, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're coming up a few months away from, from the end of the year. I know it's kind of like shocking, but uh, how fast it actually went uh, given just how, how much has happened this year. But uh year's almost over and uh, there really aren't a lot of uh, huge blockbusters left. I mean, I think the only one that I'm looking forward to at the, this point uh, is Dune, and uh, I, I'm even questioning whether that's going to end up in theaters as well if uh, if things keep going the way that they are. Um, so, well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. My, my expectation is probably sometime in the spring they'll they'll try again, um, which I guess there's a there's a positive and negative there. The positive is that um, you know the January. T- between January and March is usually kind of a, a dead period for theaters and, and movie studios. Anyway, it's usually not a lot of big tentpole releases during that time period. So it does give them a little bit of a buffer, but the downside is now that they have all, all these movies that they've completed for 2020 that were intended to like release in summer. Uh, and they probably have a bunch of movies in 2021. Uh, how crowded is the 2021 space going to be? if um you know they're able to open up safely and during the summer so that's that's going to be an interesting question down the line uh obviously we don't they don't have to answer that question yet but the scheduling for all these different movies and blockbusters is going to be pretty interesting next year and the worst thing about it is the whole thing is a constantly evolving situation we talked about how movies excuse me television shows were resuming production well, that's kind of grown to a halt up in British Columbia. The problem behind it was that there's been another wave of outbreaks because people have been going out and going to the restaurants and the bars and the gyms more and more. And, well, as we've seen, when people uh, go out again, you do see spikes in the area. And, unfortunately, this has delayed testing. So now it's caused a problem that these actors who are filming shows up there and actresses they cannot get the test back in a timely manner, so production is not able to resume until everybody involved is tested and the results come back. And so, like, just as an example, some of the, many of the CW shows have had to shut down. They were getting ready to resume production on a lot of the superhero shows, and they couldn't do it because they can't get their tests back. So they're all basically waiting in the wind until their tests come back. And since part of the agreement is that they need to be tested on a regular basis, there's this concern that they could end up filming a couple of days, then having to shut down for a few days, film a few days, shut down, and this is going to you know, not only raise cost, but it's going to push back production schedules. And like looking at the movies, for example, Tenet's been out five weeks, and it made $2.7 million over the weekend. And people say, oh, you know, that's fine, considering the situation. Hocus Pocus came out. Now, be clear on this. You can stream this for free on Disney Plus right now. It made $1.925 million coming out. Uh, the New Mutants barely made a uh, million dollars. And so 
you're you're seeing this, and you know we, we again come back to films that are out. Empire Strikes Back made over three hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars. Now, you could say, well, that's nothing. Well, right, this film came out in nineteen eighty. Most people own the DVD of it and or Blu-ray, and on top of it, it's free to stream on Disney Plus. So you know there are those that still want to go out and experience things. Now. I got something the other day that was very interesting. If you guys remember last week, I was discussing uh, Knott's Berry Farms Halloween, and it has been selling out. And for those that don't know, they basically they don't have the monsters out per se. They don't have the haunted mazes like they do at their very popular um, Not Scary Farms, but they have a lot of Halloween decor out. It starts in the day, goes through night, uh, you know, limited admission, must have a ticket, all these countless things that you can taste, very spaced areas. They have children's pumpkin things, but you got to wear your masks, the whole protocols. Uh, they've been selling this thing out, and it's to the point now where they had to open up Thursdays because Friday, Saturday, and Sundays were sold out. They've opened up the Thursdays. Those are doing so well. They've apparently had to open up some Wednesdays as well, and there's a lot of people saying at the, at the rate this thing is going, they're probably going to have to look to open up more days again because Not Scary Farm traditionally was only a weekend event, but because of reduced capacity, because uh, you also have the added draw of the uh, foods, people still want to come out, but they want to make sure it's a safe environment. Knott's has been constantly cited for being extremely safe, and their attitude is, well, rather than jump capacity, now, guys, I don't know if you heard, there was a, a story coming out on Friday, and it just goes to, and I'm, I'm going to end on this, I think it's going to explain just how chaotic things are. A lot of people in California have been waiting for Governor Newsom to release the protocols for what it takes to reopen the theme parks. And uh, due to various delays, again, Disney basically said, okay, we're going to lay off 28,000 employees as a result of this. Well, there were alleged leaks of what the report was going to be. And, you know, without getting crazy with the numbers, essentially it was going to require certain levels to be hit uh, county by county and that only like, for example, if the level was hit on a Monday, then you'd be given the okay to open in a few days. But the problem with that is if the level went above it, then you have to shut down. And as the parks were saying, well, that doesn't give us enough time to get the staff in place, do the preps, so on and so forth. One report told me that the levels were at a point where essentially if these levels were hit, there would be no pandemic. So therefore, what's the point? And then, you know, you hear these other things that were coming out about uh, one of the plans was that nobody outside of a 120 mile radius would be allowed to go to the parks and it was like uh well for someone like disneyland that attracts a worldwide audience to basically say oh we're only going to have the greater extended socal area as uh, acceptable and you know how do you do how do you enforce that and then on top of it you have uh all these new things where they apparently put in a bunch of equipment the other day that removes the manual bag check. It's essentially a bunch of scanners like they have at the airport. So when you go through your metal detector and all that, everything is scanned. So it's like they've been prepping 
for a return for people, but under the guidelines, it's not going to happen. And they, you know, had to act accordingly. So crazy stuff. Well, gentlemen, I think that's going to do it. Do you have either of you have anything else that you wanted to add in before we close today? Another from me. I'm good. Hey, Justin. All right. Well, that's going to do it, folks. You have a very safe and happy week. Until next week, take care and be well.